Well, hey, thank you very much, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, without any fiddling and deviling. They call us the good guys. I don't know why, because we're not really that good. Well, we think we're good, right, but folks, actually we're just kind of mediocre. Real cool by our My name producer, is Morgan Freeman, we have and I'd like to welcome the you to the Gary Lovett and Friends podcast. And that's Gary Ronson and his brother why doesn't Keith? Yeah. How you doing, my friend? Good yeah, morning, Bronson. Other than, other than being cooped up in the house a little bit more than I want to be, but hey, that's all of us, right? Exactly, exactly. And again, Bronson Arroyo from the Boston Red Sox. That's right, the 2004 world champion Boston Red Sox. That is so good, isn't it? Oh, I, I love this. I, I was watching a lot of film on Bronson in preparation for this. So I was going through a lot of highlights. I absolutely love the way you commanded yourself on the mound. I mean, you were a pitcher's pitcher. You were so cerebral. I mean, you didn't overpower, but you absolutely outthought the batter consistently. And your curveball from all those different angles was outstanding. Outstanding. Yeah. <laughs> if I didn't, yeah. If I didn't have my brain, I wouldn't have. I wouldn't have survived in the game. You know, I was. I was always working with a. You know, when you're a kid, you can all you can always dominate with with physicalness. You know, if you're a right. decent athlete or whatever. But you know, playing at the big league level, there's just you know even more now. But even in the in the 2000s, you know, when I was with Boston, even in my heyday, I only threw up to maybe 91, 92 on a really good day. And that's just right. nothing for a guy like Manny Ramirez or some of you know Albert Pujols, some of the greatest hitters of the game. So the only way that I was going to consistently be able to be a, a frontline major league starter was to to just have a really adept, you know, skill set of being savvy and picking hitters apart in this kind of mental chess match. And so for me, it just came down to being, you know, throwing the pitches that they didn't expect in those certain counts and trying to be, you know, meticulous with my location. And, you know, it, it, it worked out. Um, but like you said, for that, if it wasn't for that curveball, being able to change the angles on it, right. it would have been difficult for me to have enough variety in my, in my skill set to even play that game. So it's 1995 that the Pittsburgh Pirates select you in the third round of the Major League Baseball draft. And you make your debut with the Pirates in the bigs, June 12, 2000. And during that rookie season in 2000, it looks like uh, you struggled a little bit. And then what happens next? The first funny thing is that I, I made my Major League debut as a hitter. Yeah. which ha- hadn't happened in 70 years of Major League Baseball. So <laughs> I could call I could call them to the big leagues from AAA, and my, my manager's name was Richie Hebner, who was an all-time great oh, yeah. pirate hitter. And Richie Hebner calls me in the office, and he says, I got some good news and bad news. Which one you want first? And I said, I'll take, I'll take the bad news. And he said, well, the bad news is you're not pitching today here in Colorado against the uh, AAA Colorado Springs. And he said, but the good news is on Wednesday you're pitching against the Pirates. So I get called up the day before I'm supposed to start, and I'm sitting on the bench. And in the third inning, the manager says, Arroyo, I want you on the on-deck circle. And I said, I have tennis shoes on. And he says, don't worry about it. Get in there. I need you to pinch hit. So I pinch hit in like the third inning against Bruce Chen of the Braves to make my major league debut. It's the first time it had happened in 70 years. So it was a, a strange day, but it got me it got me a little more comfortable out on the field. But I, I, definitely, I definitely struggled in those first – um, few, really three years with the Pirates. I, I had always not dominated, but I had, had I was a, re, a really good, solid winner in the minor leagues at every level with the Pirates. But when I got to the big leagues, they weren't allowing me to call my own game. They they were forcing me to to go with Jason Kendall, the catcher, at whatever he put down. I wasn't allowed to shake it off. And what they didn't realize at the time was that my whole 
you know, part of my, a large part of my skill set was what was between my ears and, and thinking through picking these hitters apart. And so they took that away from me. And so for those first few years in the major leagues, before I got claimed off the waiver wire by Theo Epstein to come over to Boston, you know, I, I struggled at the big league level. And that's always a thing that I, I have a grievance with, with a lot of coaches. They tend to always want to put their thumbprint on a player. Uh, as opposed to letting them be, I mean, obviously they were impressed with you, and, and they know your game. They know how smart you are on the hill, on the bump, and the fact that they 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 want to take that away from you, and that's a huge part of your game, like you just literally just told us right now. So I'm amazed, and I'm also irritated that coaches do that. Yeah, it happens more, and I think you know, I think as the game evolves, people are getting a little bit wiser and not falling into the same old traps and the same old myths that we heard, you know as a kid or whatever it is. And, and, you know, the guy who drafted me with the pirates is, is with the, uh, the New York Yankees the last 15 years, his name is Scott Lovecamp. And he's kind of, he, he's, he's up there on the, on the echelon of their, their pitching department. And, and he, you know, he'll tell me things now that are so different than what we talked about 20 years ago. And one of the things is, is he, he's trying to get organizations to allow him to work with the guys he drafts for two or three years after they come into the organization. Because what, what, what happens is you get drafted by some guy who's been watching you pitch in college or in high school. He knows mostly everything about you. He knows your skill set. He's drafting you on that skill set. And then you immediately go into the minor leagues and you never see him again. And then all the coaches get you in the organization and they try to change you, like you said. Yeah. And so a lot of times they're taking away what is special about a kid as he comes in. And it makes it very difficult for guys to kind of feel like they're themselves out yeah. on the mound. Exactly. Now, we're speaking with Bronson Arroyo, 2004, incredible World Series with the Boston Red Sox. He played with several different major league teams, the Pirates he started with, then the Red Sox, then the Cincinnati Reds, Arizona Diamondbacks, and back to the Reds. Quite a career. Yeah. Yeah, it was it was fantastic. If you told me when I was, uh, you know, I always thought I'd play in the big leagues. I didn't know I'd be a pitcher. But, you know, from a very young age, I was lifting weights with my father on a real serious note, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm an eight year old kid. I weigh 55 pounds down in Key West, Florida. And I've got video of me squatting 235, deadlifting 255 pounds and benching 130. That's a, it's a 50 pound eight year old doing that. Wow. That's unreal. I've been taking supplements. You know, he was training me as a, as a big league player. Um, and so by the time, by the time I got into baseball, I was a little bit ahead of most of the guys kind of in, in that, in that department. But um, that was part of the reason that the durability that kept me around for such a long time was, was part of those early years. Now you could swing it too. I remember you, you, you could hit. In fact, I was looking at one, I, I, I this is what I, my take on it was. And I actually looked at one of the, your, uh, one of your at bats where you, you hit a line drive home run. You were with the Reds at the time. I'm not quite sure what year that was, but I was watching. I go, hi, nice swing. I guess probably pop. 2006. Yeah. yeah. Well, when I first got so when I first got picked up or for, when I first got traded mm. from the Red Sox to the Reds, I hadn't hit in three or four years. And my first uh, two games of the season against the Cubs, Glenn and Rush faced me both times, and then within within five days, I hit two two uh, home runs. One one went out of Wrigley into on the Waveland Avenue, and uh, the, the other wow. one was in Cincinnati. And so people remember those home runs. I hit six homers, which isn't. You know, there's some guys that hit six homers in a year, like Mike Hampton or, you know, a guy like Bumgarner or Zambrano. Those guys yeah. really, 
hit some power numbers. But I, I was a decent hitter. If they threw me fastballs, I could hit it. But if you threw me some off-speed stuff, usually I was in trouble. So it's like I think my career batting average is probably about a 140. But I was a good athlete. I could feel my position. I could run the bases. Yeah. You know, I was a little bit better than most in those departments. Yeah, and that's what I remember about you, that you're so – I mean, you're just athletic. You, you were an athlete. You are on the hill. Like you said, you weren't overpowering, but you're so darn smart. And, uh, and your time with the Red Sox. I mean, obviously, we, we always refer back to 2004. Gary's mentioned World Series, but I remember the ALDS. I remember you guys going up with the Yankees. And I remember one particular play, obviously. I'm, I'm going to bring it up. You're going over to put the tag on A-Rod, and he slaps the ball out of your hand, out of your glove. And, 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 and at that time, I mean, I'm thinking, I'm watching the game, and I'm, I'm going nuts. I go, you can't do that. You can't do that. And, and it's look like they're going to get away with it. It's like we're in New York. We're actually going to change the rules just to accommodate the Yankees. And thank God, the, the God God was looking down on that particular moment, and we, we righted that ship, and you guys went on to – and you went on particularly to be huge, huge in that ALDS. Yeah, it was – you know, when I got there – when I got to Boston in 03, I remember in spring training, Theo Epstein said to me um, – he called me in the office, and he said, you're not going to make this club – I need to hide you on the way, uh, away from the waiver wire at the end of spring training when everybody's rosters are full because I want to keep you. And so he did that, and he, and he told me, you know, I went to Pawtucket, and I had a good season down there. I threw a perfect game in August, and I finally got called up to the big leagues for good. But when I got into '03 3 playoffs, I had only been in the big leagues for a month and a half, and I made that playoff roster in the bullpen. And yeah. when he realized that I could pitch in that environment of Yankee Stadium, and I didn't look like I had any nerves, and I could throw strikes, and I just looked gutsy out there. You know, it, it really, it really helped me out to have the organization in in 2004 then say to me, "Hey, man, you're going to be, you know, one of our guys. You're going to be on this ball club no matter what." And I had never gotten that from the Pirates. There was always this question mark on whether you'd make the team or not. And so, Garcia really solidified that for me. It made me feel like I was pitching back in the minor leagues again. Yeah. You felt like yourself. You felt like your old self. And so, by the time 04 came. And you get in those big moments, Yankee Stadium. You know, you got Alex Rodriguez at the plate. I'm facing Derek Jeter and Gary Sheffield all the time. Yeah. It made it easy for me to just bring my skill set to the forefront and get out of some of those jams that otherwise, you know, 26, 27 years old, a lot of guys would have just been terrified in Yankee Stadium in those moments. But I was seasoned enough from those years with the Pirates as well to kind of to handle those nerves. But then, and this is what irks me about the Red Sox. You, you win 14 games. Like if you go 10-9, and nine, uh, was it 05, 05? No, no, it was 04, 04, 05. 10-9 and nine was 04. Yeah. I didn't get all my starts. Yeah, right, but, Young Kim started the season in the rotation. Yeah, yeah, well, that's another matter. But anyways, next year, 14 wins with the Sox. And then you're gone. You're I know. Off, I, I led the team in quality starts, and I was the youngest guy on the staff. It really blew me away when they made that trade. That hurt. That hurt the Red Sox. That hurt a lot. And you were an all-star in 2006, right? Yeah. Yeah, I'll tell you a couple funny stories. One is, so I get, I get traded, and to this day, I've never really gotten the, a real answer from Theo Epstein about why he traded me. I mean, we joke around about it once in a while, but usually when I'm with him, it's like at a music event, and he's had a few beers, and <laughs> you know, we don't get to have a serious conversation, but... I don't really understand why they, they made that call. The only thing I can, can guesstimate is that they either thought that I was running too hard off the field, um, playing music, and that maybe my best years had already come, or or that they saw my strikeout totals go down a little bit from 04 to 05, and I think maybe they thought I was on the backside uh, that the league was going to start catching up with me. But, you know, when he, when he traded me, I get over to, 
to Cincinnati, and it must have been, I don't know, mid-May or something, and Larry Lucchino came by at our stadium here in Cincinnati because he was friends with our owner, Bob Castellini, and he was saying, oh, we got all these guys that are hurt, and Matt Clement is too soft, and he doesn't want to pitch, and we really need, we need a guy like you. And I was like, are you kidding me? You just got rid of me, and you're telling me <laughs> to my face that you need a guy like me? I was, I was all in, man. I signed a three-year undervalued yeah. deal. And you guys ship me off? It's like, dude, you can't say that to me. But, you know, at the All-Star break, Theo, Theo did call me that year. And it was just before the All-Star game. And he said, um, I just want to tell you, Bronson, that I can't walk anywhere in New England without somebody screaming at me out of a car, why did you trade Arroyo? Yeah. And, you know, it was nice for him to say that to me just because, uh, you know, they had 07, they didn't make the playoffs. And, and most of it was because their starting pitching wasn't That's healthy. Right. Yep. Yeah. And, and then you go on to Cincinnati and, Man, you had 14 wins, 15, 15, 17. You, you banged on another 12 and then 14. I mean, you just you just kept getting better. That yeah, is- it was it was uh it was fun to, it was fun to pitch. You know, the one thing that it, the trade did do for me is that it allowed me to show people that I could win 14 or 15 games with a bad team. Yeah. You know, I could do that on a team that wasn't even going to make the playoffs. I didn't necessarily have to have a world champion style team in order to put up 20 quality starts in a season. And that, that helped me out on a personal level, just monetarily being able to command a contract. And I think I could have still done that in Boston, but you know, you, you just never know what would have happened. I mean, had I not been traded, it might've been, I might've been a swing guy for a long time. I could have been a guy who was pitching out of the bullpen and starting, which would have yeah. devalued me a bit. So in, in on like a personal level, it helped me, but I, but I will say that, you know, there was nothing like playing in Fenway, and I was so disappointed. That's what I was really disappointed about was that the fans were so rabid, and I loved playing in a place where it felt like the fans were coming to see the Beatles reunite every uh, night. You could see them walking so cool. into the stadium as if it was a moment they would never get back. And I, I don't quite get it. You have the athleticism, as you guys alluded to earlier, a guy that could hit, a guy that could pitch, a guy that could actually feel too because you have a gold glove award oh, from he's 2010 good. he's good in the, the field and, and then and then this this is what i say and, and you'll get this one on top of all those physical qualities that you possessed then you got the larry bird brain which is basically outthinking the people that you're pitching against mm. constantly and why don't people get this why don't management get this yeah. you know it's hard, it's hard i think you know, to kind of look inside of a guy's mind. And in the early days when I was with the Pirates, I, I would get called to the big leagues and they, they didn't really understand how special I was in that department as well. And, and part of it was it being overshadowed by my happy-go-lucky personality. I was, I was always, you know, with a smile on my face. I was playing a little guitar. They just you know, assumed I was a guy who was smoking a joint on the beach and I looked like <laughs> a kid from California from Florida. And and, bec- and and you would you know I like to go out and I liked women and stuff so you know you add all that stuff together and I think they thought I was gonna think I was gonna be a guy who just didn't take the game serious enough to put up a 15 year career in the big leagues like I did but what they didn't understand is they they couldn't see under my skin they couldn't see those experiences as a kid working in the weight room on a level that no one on this planet has ever done except for maybe you know Olympic athletes from Russia oh. and and um. You know, once they understood that in Cincinnati and they saw that I picked up every little crumb to be the best player that I could be, then I finally got my respect and my due in the game. But it didn't really come until after I was gone from Boston. Yeah. You you played with a lot of talent throughout your career. I mean, you just played with a lot of guys. And I remember I was watching uh, the All-Star highlights and you were on. And uh, you, you had those guys perplexed. 
your curve was just nasty. It was like it was twelve six. It's just dropping, literally like off a table. And those guys are just flailing, little little pop ups. Yeah, my my breaking ball was always, you know, if it wasn't for my curveball, there was no doubt that I would have been, you know, a guy who was a swing guy out of the bullpen, a long guy who who just you know stuck around the game for three or four years. But my breaking ball was was special because I had I had extraordinary command of it, and I could change the angles and the speed on it. Yeah. So it always gave me an it always gave me an out when I was in a sticky situation. I could lean on something that was moving so heavily that it made it a little harder for the batters to catch up with yeah. me. And I, you know, I'd been throwing that since I was a, a probably 12 or 13 years old, but I just had, I just had a feel for it even in high school. And, and what you find in players these days is if, if a guy can throw strikes in high school, he usually throws strikes in the major leagues and guys who don't have command and they walk a lot of batters early on in high school, they usually are walking guys at the big league level. And for whatever reason, I just had a feel for, to make shapes with a baseball. And it, it wasn't a struggle. I didn't have to think about my mechanics. I could just, it was almost like shooting a free throw and the first one you hit the front of the rim and you don't really change anything. You just tell yourself, Hey, shoot this one just a little harder. That's how it was for me throwing that breaking ball yeah. strikes. When I really started getting a lot of detail in that, I always had a good breaking ball and I had the ability to change it. But in 2003, when I was in Pawtucket, Bill Hasselman was catching me and Bill was a longtime Red Sox. He, I think he caught Roger Clemens second 20, um, strikeout performance and he was about 40 years old he's at the end of his career but he helped me out a lot down there because we had a really good back and forth uh, pitcher catcher you know kind of relationship and I, I started throwing this drop down I would drop down a little bit and throw this the backdoor curveball to lefties on an on an 0-0 count or a 1-0 count or a 2-1 count and it would start off the plate and come back on the plate just kind of catch the corner mm. and that's what started me thinking that I could change angles on it a little bit more heavy. And then I started using that against righties with two strikes and made it very sweepy. Instead of being 12, six, I could pull it left to right. Yeah, yeah. And that I realized that a lot of guys were not being seeing that ball very good. And so when I got up to the big leagues in Oh three for the first year, you know, even guys like Derek Jeter who had great um, command of the strike zone, they were swinging and flailing at that ball. Yeah. And then they figured me out and they started taking it. But but it was, you know, that that year really kind of, 03 really kind of propelled me um, with that breaking ball to put me on another level to keep me in the big leagues for, for those the next 15 years. Yeah, for quite a while. Lengthy career, 146 total wins. You go from baseball and then you go to music. And you've done really well with that. Actually, you had, I believe your debut album back in 2005 was called Covering the Bases. Yeah, that's right. And it included covers from bands such as Pearl Jam, Alice in Chains, Stone Temple Pilots, Foo Fighters, and Incubus. That had to be a lot of fun. It was. It was. You know, it was an off season after we won the World Series. I got a call from a producer, and he, and he said, "Hey, I'd love to make a record with you." I read an article that you played that you were the you were the human jukebox in the clubhouse, <laughs> and I think Millar had said that in the paper or something. And I said, man, I, I I don't know if I have enough time. You know, we're taking the trophy to a bunch of different places and stuff. And he said, I tell you what, why don't you just pick 12 of your favorite songs of all time, and I'm going to bring in the, the greatest band you've ever seen in your life. And let's, you know, it'll be quick and easy. You don't have to write original songs. And I said, okay, let's do it. And he, he winds up bringing in Kenny Aronoff, drummer. Oh, great drummer. Camp for 20 years. Great yep. drummer. Kenny yep. Aronoff. He brings in Lee Sklar, one of the greatest yep. bass players who've ever lived. Played with James Taylor all through the 70s. He's played on 2,500 hit records. I mean, just a legend. And 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 uh, he brings these guys in and we just, we go up to Calabasas, California and, and made that record. And it was a lot of fun because I, I didn't have to focus on anything except the singing because they were such great players. And, and it was my first experience 
really being around quality musicians and having the ability to to make an album like that and it, it was you know it was a shame that i got traded just after we put the record out because it would have been fun to play some more shows in new england and then you had an all-star cast on dirty water your rendition of dirty water tell us who was playing <laughs> the standell song i want to hear some of the players on that song oh yeah that well that was actually so that that was a, a middle part of the song that we didn't want to I did. I, he was talking in the background. The Standell version. They were just talking or something. I did. I wanted to do something different. So, so we thought, let's bring in some of the guys. And so we brought in Johnny Damon and Kevin Euclid and Lenny Donardo. And then Elon Trotman came in, my buddy, and played some saxophone on it. And and uh, we did that that day. And we. They, he said, "What do you want to talk about?" And so they just said, "Just throw out ideas, things that are going on, current events, whatever's happening with the Red Sox at the time." And so if you listen to that part. There's all kinds of stuff where you hear Kevin Euclid talking about bartending um, at Daisy Buchanan's, and you hear Johnny Damon talking about running around naked in the locker room to warm up before the game, and you, you hear him talking about um, how Manny, remember when he cut that ball off that one time? He yeah, dove yeah, and yeah, cut yeah, the ball yeah. off, and it was like a bang-bang play at the plate, and he cost us the game. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Right, Manny being Manny. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That was all in there. So that was it, was, it was fun. And to this day, you know, that record, that song, I don't know what it is, but everybody I know that has kids, they're always like, play Dirty Water, play Dirty Water. They love that song. And you had Kevin Millar actually join you on guitar in doing some vocals on Tessie, which, of course, is a Drop Murphy song, or has been covered by them. Yeah, that's right. The, the Tessie... The Tessie thing there, the Dropkick Murphys, they were they were friends with uh, Jeff Horgan, who was one of the beat writers, and he also is one of the founders of the Hot Stove Cool Music for Theo Epstein and Peter Gammons. And so we got involved with that, and uh, Millar was always hanging around that scene. I, you know, in, in 2003, I went to that the first hot, or it was my first Hot Stove Cool Music. I think it was the second annual, and I uh, Peter Gammons asked me, he said, don't you play a little bit? You want to jump up on stage? And so I did, and but I thought, you know, Kevin Millar loved the music, but I didn't really realize that he didn't know any words and he actually couldn't carry a tune. So I, <laughs> I said, do you want to go up and sing along with me? And so we went up on the stage and I started playing Black by Pearl Jam, and I realized really quickly that Kevin was, was terrible and he didn't know one word. And so I, <laughs> yeah, I just had him shut up <laughs> and I finished the song. So P- Peter liked the joke that, that my music career almost got derailed by Kevin Millar from day uh, one. <laughs> that's such a fun team. What was the... What was the the feeling? Uh, I I, I want to feel what you felt as you guys, uh, you know, you, you you storm back, you take the Yankees down, and you go on to win it. I, I just want to know how euphoric was that locker room? What was the feeling when you guys traveled? Just kind of put us there if you can, Bronson. Yeah, you know, we, well, you know, after 03, we, we really felt like picking up Kurt Schilling that we were going to, have the team to win it. And, and we had t-shirts in the locker room that year. There was, you know, there's always a bunch of sayings around a, a baseball locker room. And one of them was cowboy up that came from Millar and, and, um, and Doug Mirabelli. And then you had a bunch of shirts that said, this is the year. And I think Kurt had made those. And we really did think we had the best team in, in the, in the game. And we find ourselves down three games to none. We were just, you know, a little, a little stunned. Um, not that we didn't believe that we could come back, but nobody had ever done it. And you just know that the odds are, are not in your favor, but, but guys like Millar and we had just quality professionals, you know, when you, when I think back upon that team, you know, I was 27 years old or 28 and I was, I, I really felt like the water boy on the team. Honestly, you know, I was a young guy who was just, just trying to fly underneath the radar of Kurt Schilling and Pedro Martinez and Derek Lowe and, and Tim Wakefield and just, you know, do my job every fifth day. But on a big league ball club now, a 28-year-old is almost like a, a veteran or an, an older guy. Yeah, and so yeah. 
it was a different time. And the, the average age of that team was probably 30 or 31. And it was just a stud team. And it was really fun to be in that locker room. And there was just a lot of confidence. You know, Kevin Millar made the, the, the joking stuff really fun inside the locker room. But that was only because we knew when we got on the field that other teams were going to fear us and that we were going to be able to get the job done. And so when we were down three to no, three games to nothing, part of that whole mystique there kept us together enough to get past you know, one game, and then and then once it was three to two, and we went back to New York. It almost felt like it was an even match. Yeah. And we then once we tied it up in New York, and it was three three. We almost felt like we had it in hand, but we obviously still had the remembrance of of being beat in Game Seven by Aaron Boone in '03. So yeah. we needed to get over that hump. But when we did, when we got over that hump, it really felt like it was over. You know, I, yeah. I we had, I don't know if anybody had watched a National League game in a long time. You felt like playing in the Yankee Red Sox rivalry was the center of the universe, and we were just grinding so hard, almost with blinders on, that we didn't even know what was going on, on the National yeah. League side. So when we start the World Series, it was almost like it, it was depressurized. It, it, fe- it felt like oh, this is just a fresh start. It felt like we were supposed to win this thing, and so we made a lot of mistakes in Game One. We we pulled that one out after having three or four errors, and then. We win game two, and once we got after game two, after game two was over, it was like we were coasting in the last two games of the World Series. In a lot of ways, it, it, it felt like you were already starting to celebrate. Not 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 in a, not in a way where you're jumping around, but in a in a way where you're, you're you're standing back and observing something from a distance that you're admiring. And it's like we did this. We 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 we're doing it. We're riding off into the sunset here as world champions. And and um. So the end of that series, in my mind, was almost very calm. It wasn't the same as the Yankee thing. We weren't at the top of the mountain anymore fighting for our lives. It was, it was you know, we were kind of um, just looking back upon what a great season this has been. And that's what it felt like at the end. And so it was a little bit anticlimactic, I would say. Um, but it was very nostalgic and, and, and at the same time, you know, where we, we were just um, you know, finally we came to do what, what, what we set out to do eight months ago. And this is the ball club we wanted to do, do it with. And, um, you know, Orlando Cabrera came over from Omar Garcia par and really was a spark plug for us. And you never yeah. could have, you never would have foreseen that we were going to win a world series without Nomar, but that's just the way it went down. But, you know, and then we come back home and the parade and everything. I mean, it was the, the people made you feel like you actually impacted their lives. Like you changed you their world. And that's not easy to do from a sports standpoint. Yeah. Yeah. I asked you to take me back and give me that feeling. You just, you literally just did that. I actually, I was transfixed. You brought me back in that time and you guys did mean that much. You, you, and you should never deny that or doubt that you guys were that significant in the lives of so many, so many Red Sox fans, so many New Englanders, you know, old timers to the, the young guys who were little guys. And, and you gave us that which was extraordinary, and you should always know that. That's always going to be associated with you and all your teammates on that 04 squad. Yeah, I didn't leave the city for probably, I'd say it was at least a month after the World Series was over, and there was just a lot of autograph sessions. There was a lot of people coming in town who were wanting us to sign all these team memorabilia things for money, and, and we were taking the trophy. I think I took it to two places. I took it to Providence, and I took it up to um, Vermont, and and in that time, you know, I was staying at the Sheridan downtown there and I would walk my dog out. And it was just amazing. I tell these two stories because other players would ask me on other teams years later, was it really that different in Boston? And the two things that I try to point to is 
I say, after we won the World Series, people would walk up to you and they would always say, they would never say, congratulations, you won the World Series. They would always say, thank you. Thank you for my grandfather who didn't get to see it or thank you for my, you know, my great uncle who did get to see it and he's in the hospital. And and the other thing was the, the amount of people that went to the cemeteries and we're reading these newspaper articles to the tombstones. You know, yeah. you just don't get that in another city. And, you know, that's why I was so heartbroken by being traded, um, you know, in 2006, because I really envisioned myself playing on that team for at least another three years and having the opportunity to maybe win another World Series and just entrenching yourself into the, the lifestyle of the New England way and, the you know, the whole Red Sox Nation thing just had really grown on me. And I, I, was, I was really bummed out to be taken out of that. Yeah, you were such a uh, – you were a cog. That, that's why it hurt. And, you know, to this day, any diehard Red Sox fan, we, you always look back on the trades that the Sox have made in the history of, of the uh, the franchise. You know, we, we go all the way back to Ruth, of course, and, and your name absolutely figures in on those many blunders that the Red Sox have done. Yeah, especially after you give them a World Series. Yeah, it's, it's just it's just <laughs> amazing. It's a double, such a double-edged sword. Uh, just Theo plucked me off the waiver wire like a diamond. That, you know, that, right. that he found a diamond in the rough, and then uh, and then he gave he gave me away for Willie Mopena. I just I couldn't understand. couldn't hit a curveball, Willie Mopena. <laughs> he couldn't hit your curveball. That's for sure. No. Oh, I know. Oh, that's another funny story. Was so when I got traded, we're down in spring training. There was only two starts left in in uh, in spring training. So I go over to Sarasota from Fort Myers. I get over there. I don't even know who's on the Reds. I know Griffey's there, but that's really all I know. And, and they tell me this is Aaron Harang. He's our number one starter. And um, Jerry Naren, who was a was um, a coach from the Red Sox in 03, he was the manager there. I didn't even know that. So I, I get over there. I'm trying to get my bearings about me. And I pitch against the Phillies two days later, I think. And then my last start against the Red Sox on ESPN is going to be my last start of spring training. So I go back to Fort Myers. I throw seven innings with David Ross catching me. I go no runs, ten punches, and I punched yeah. out Willie Mo three times. All right. Nice trade, Theo. I had a buddy in the crowd that had a big old sign that said, nice trade, Theo. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, oh, man, fantastic. That uh, is so awesome. I, I love that. I mean, that, that, oh, that made my day. Thank you, Bronson. Well, Bronson, thank you very much again, folks. The one and only Bronson Arroyo. Here we go, folks. Appreciate it, guys. Oh, thank you, Bronson. Appreciate this. Producer Dave here from pod617.com. A reminder to subscribe to this podcast and leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or Google Podcasts. Wherever you find it, you can always go to pod617.com for the full library of this show. In pod, we trust.